I envy him, but I'm in lousy shape, so he would never take me on one of his <laughs> journeys as it is. I've gasped and been rebuffed. No, that's not true. But anyway. No, you're not being rebuffed, man. I've said to you, I've said to you, you know about the fitness. If you can do it, Tim, you're there. No problem. It's all on you. Always has been. The office there. <laughs> you're you're going to live to regret that one of these days. Ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com, with another edition of BOA Audio Season 6. Very excited about this installment of the program, because we're welcoming back my good buddy, Extreme Explorer Extraordinaire, Adam Davies. And I feel like it dovetails perfectly with the last edition of the program, which was, of course, our 2010 year in review for the world of ufology, as well as a look at cryptozoology and the paranormal in general. And one of the big themes that seemed to emerge from that episode was this frustration over the lack of tangible evidence to just about any paranormal mystery across the board. Well, we have a great sort of retort, in a sense, to that point, and it comes this week, of course, from our guest, Adam Davies. He is a world-class cryptozoologist, my friends. He is, in my opinion, one of the very, very best researchers in all of Esoterica, and I know that's a bold statement, but why I say that is because Adam Davies puts boots to the ground and actually goes to amazing locations all over the world to find information on all these different mysterious cryptids. He's got guts in abundance, my friends. These are seriously terrifying and arduous locations to explore. He's gone to the Himalayas in search of the Yeti. He's traveled to, of course, Sumatra many times to look for the Orang Pendek. He's had research expeditions in search of Norway's Nessie, the Almas of Russia, and, of course, the infamous Mongolian death worm. So this guy is a serious world traveler and his expeditions consistently produce some remarkable data on all these different creatures. He's doing yeoman's work, my friends. He's doing potential breakthrough work year in and year out. Now let's get down to business on what we're going to be talking about here this year on Adam's appearance on BOA Audio because it's very, very exciting. In the last year, Adam traveled to India in search of the mysterious creature known as the Mandy Barung. And the best way to describe the Mandy Barung, for lack of a better term, is essentially India's Bigfoot. But who knows really what this creature is. Adam will take us up close and personal on his journey to India. We'll hear how it came about, what the conditions were like during the expedition, some stories about the adventure. He'll tell us what the eyewitnesses in the area say the Mandy Barung looks like and its behavior. This is seriously compelling stuff, folks. And Adam will tell us about the evidence for the creature that he and his team collected during the trip. But that's not all, my friends, because then we're going to get into really what has become Adam's white whale, 
and that is, of course, the Sumatran Orang Pendek. He'll tell us about some extremely promising new DNA findings that have come out in the past few months with regards to the Orang Pendek, thanks to Adam's expeditions to Sumatra. And from there, we'll find out what he sees as the best way to take the investigation to the next level in 2011 and beyond. Adam is, as I said, hot on the trail of the Orang Pendek. He's the closest of anyone we know to actually proving the existence of this creature. So we're going to get a very, very timely update on what the situation is with regards to this mysterious creature of Sumatra. As you kind of heard from the introduction, and if you've heard the program before with Adam Davies, you know there's going to be a lot of laughs in this conversation, and of course, there's going to be a lot of really fresh and fascinating information here from Adam Davies. You're going to hear some really groundbreaking stuff, some really rare stuff. Not too many people have gone in search of the Mandy Barung. Not too many people even know what it is or have much less investigated it. Adam has walked the trails of the Mandy Barung, and he's going to tell us all about it here. He is a hardcore cryptozoologist. He travels to the ends of the earth stalking the world's most mysterious creatures. You've waited long enough, folks. Adam Davies is back at his Paranormal Audio Base Camp to give us an update on all of his adventures from 2010 and tease some very cool stuff for 2011. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Adam Davies, allow me to provide you with a little background on him. Adam Davies has tracked so-called mystery creatures all over the globe. His adventures include being shot at in the Congo whilst looking for the Mokele Mamembe, Congo dinosaur, and being arrested by the Mongolian army as a spy whilst hunting the fabled death worm of Mongolia. Adam sincerely believes that some but not all of these fabled creatures exist, and embarks on field research in order to substantiate this. He's also had some fantastic successes, with scientists confirming his finds as remarkable and astonishing in the case of both the Sumatran Orang Pendek and Norway's Nessie. Remarkably, to date, Adam's expeditions have been entirely self-funded. He has been featured and or presented on some very enjoyable documentaries, including Russian Bigfoot on the National Geographic Channel, as well as The Real Hobbit and China's Wild Man on the History Channel's Monster Quest series. Adam would love to pursue his passion full-time, but at present works as a civil servant in Manchester, UK. His website is www.extreme-expeditions.com. Check it out. And if you want to find out more about Adam Davies and his adventures, you definitely want to pick up his book, Extreme Expeditions from Anomalous Books. You can get it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble, and my friends at Anomalous Books tell me that you can now get Extreme Expeditions as an ebook for your Kindle, Nook, or iPad. And on that note, I've jibber-jabbered enough, folks. Let's get down to business and rock and roll. This interview was recorded on December 21st, 2010. Adam Davies tells us about his journey to India in search of the Mandy Barung and provides an update on Sumatra's Orang Pendek on BOA Audio Season 6. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of BOA Audio Season 6. We're welcoming back somebody who has really become a great friend of the program Seems like every year around this time now, this is the third year we've done it, sort of building itself into a tradition. We welcome back Adam Davies to the program to talk about his extreme expeditions of the past year. And this year he's got quite an interesting journey that he went on. We're going to delve 
all into it. If you don't know who Adam Davies is, you already heard the prepared bio at the beginning of the show, but you know, let me put him over here once again. Obviously, he's the author of Extreme Expeditions, the book, and he puts his money where his mouth is as far as this cryptozoology stuff goes. He travels all over the world in terrifying and arduous conditions and has a great time doing it and picks up some amazing evidence. He's really uh, closer and closer to nabbing the Orang Pendek, or proving its existence at least, and he's spent considerable amount of time in the Himalayas. I mean, he's just a, he's a world traveler and a daredevil, really, and it's kind of rare in the world of esoterica because a lot of people do their research, you know, by talking to witnesses of UFO sightings or something like that or reading from the computer or something. So it's like he, he really gets out there and does it. So, you know, I envy him, but I'm in lousy shape, so he would never take me on one of his... <laughs> journeys as it is i've asked <laughs> and been rebuffed no that's not true but anyway no, you're not being rebuffed, man. I've, said to you, I've said to you you know about the fitness if you can do it tim you're there no problem i know it's all on me <laughs> it's all on you always has been the office there <laughs> you're, you're gonna live to regret that one of these days no i won't we'll have a blast I promise you Anyway, well, obviously you just heard from him. Adam Davies, welcome back to the show. I'm starting to think of this program as sort of like your base camp of uh, Paranormal Audio. You're back here to talk about what's been going on. Yeah, I always have a blast doing this show. It's great, and it's really good to talk to you again, Tim. I'm looking forward to today's show. Yeah, it's, it's going to be great to catch up, and obviously it's going to sound out of context, but happy holidays. You know, Merry Christmas. We're only a few days away from the holidays, so I hope yours is awesome. Yeah, and you. I hope you have a great time. So... Aside from the big expedition, let's start, I guess, just, you know, sort of obscure that part. We'll get into that in a moment. How was the year otherwise for you? You know, how did everything go since the last time we talked to you? It, it went well. I mean, you know, last time we talked, I was talking about what I might do in the future. And then pretty soon, pretty soon after that, I started to plan things and, and make some progress. And, you know, I'm pleased that as I look back on the year, there's been um, two really potential fantastic achievements. Uh, which I'll talk about, and one really, really great expedition. So I would consider uh, this last year to be a real success, so I'm very pleased with how it's gone. Yeah, it, I was impressed. Uh, I, I, looked, I was following you along over the year and then looked back at, at what you'd done, and it was like, wow, this, you know, another fantastic year for, for Adam Davies, another, you know, remarkable year. Now, the big, the big expedition this year was a late October trip to India, to find the, then uh, you're going to stump me again here with the name of this, this creature. Should I say it first? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's called the Mandi Barung, yeah? Okay, the Mandi Barung. Uh, Mandi Barung in India. Exactly. So I guess, you know, first of all, what is the Mandi Barung? And second, you know, what plant, because I've never even heard of this thing. So, I mean, mm. kudos to you for, for even knowing about this. And, and what planted the seed for you to go after this? Because, you know, you cut your teeth really and really made significant progress on the Orang Pendak. And we talked last year, you saying, you know, you're kind of thinking about, you know, moving away a little bit from that. But obviously you were in the Himalayas last year, so you get a completely different sort of direction with this one. So how did it all spring to mind, I guess you could say, and tell us about the creature, obviously. Yeah, I will do. I mean, the first thing I'll say is let's come back to the Orang Pendak because there's been some really significant mm -hmm. uh, news on that. But yeah. we'll talk about oh, that. Oh, we'll definitely, yeah. I have still have a lot of questions about the mischievous <laughs> yeah, little beast. <laughs> well, the... the, the the, the way it happened with, with the Manipurang was, I was in, um, if you can recall, I was in, uh, last year I was in Nepal, I was in the Himalayas with mm. um, a, a, a monster craft, um, we were looking for the abominable snowman, that was the, that was the episode. 
And while I was there, um, I was with a, a chap called Ian Redmond, who's the UN ambassador for gorillas. He's an OBE, he's a British guy. And I was with a mountaineer called Yagihara, a Japanese uh, gentleman. Mm-hmm. Now, while I was with Ian, we were talking about other things, and, and one of the one of the nights um, around the campfire, when I'd come down from that um, horrendous mountain, I rendezvoused with Ian, and uh, <laughs> you know we were having a drink, and I was telling him my tales about how we nearly died, etc., on top of the mountain. Mm-hmm. I remember and, that. And yeah. It, okay. Yeah, you remember, like you know, the rocks and the boulders, and we were jumping over them, and um, you know, the avalanche nearly nearly mm-hmm. killed us, etc. So I was telling him my tales, and we were then we got talking about other things, and Ian said that he'd been in touch with. Um, an Indian researcher called Dipu Marek, and that there were stories um, coming out of India about a creature called the Mandibarung. Now, the stories were that, that there was, the stories go back centuries, essentially, which interested me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'd heard of very little about it, but not very much. I mean, you're completely right in saying there isn't a lot of research. And he said to me, um, you know, this is something you should really check out and go see. Um, for yourself. I'd, re- I'd originally advised Doug Hijack, who's the producer of Monster Quest, to, to do a short recce on it um, himself, and, and he did. But then I decided to, to plan a really in-depth expedition to yeah. really sort of, to really go as, for as long as I possibly could. Because Ian, Ian inspired me to go, he said, you know, this is, this is something I think in my capacity as an expert is something that's worth checking out. And when, when I started to research it, uh, it became apparent, I like the idea it had gone back centuries, Tim. I like the idea, you know, we weren't talking about plastic yetis in the last five years, you know. Right, exactly, right. Yeah, there wasn't some crap about an, uh, a, a tourist trade thing. You know, it was, this was something that the people really believed in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I got in contact with Dipu Marek um, in early March. Beginning of March is when I got into contact with him. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, I want to bring a team together to India. I want to look at this. And then we started the in-detail planning. So it started in March based on the idea I picked up from Ian Redmond the year before. Yeah, yeah, I was impressed by that as I as I was following along and reading and recalling that. Yeah, I mean, that's how long is that? Like nine months almost of planning. So. Yeah, it's nine months. When you when you're planning an expedition, when there's been very little background research, so very few people have gone, you pretty much got to start from scratch. So you know, I literally got on my computer and 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 thought, right. Well, how the hell do I begin doing this? You know, I'm here. I am starting again. Uh, you know, I've, I've planned through from scratch before, but there was so there was such a lack of information. It was extremely difficult. There was one website that that Dipu had put up with, with a few things on it, but that was it. And you know, with these things, as as you said, it's it's my time and my money, and also the people I'm with. I'm responsible for their lives. I lead the expedition, so it's not only my time and my money. I've also got to think, consider the safety of the people who are out there. And, and at the time, there were some pretty hairy stories about terrorist activity out there as well. Oh, boy. Um, there were some really um, quite um, active insurgent groups, and we, we saw a burnt-out truck on, on the way out as we got in there. And, and before we went, um, somebody had been kidnapped, and there were two bomb explosions. So, oh, Jesus. Yeah, it was weighing it all up before we went. You know, it was like touch and go, and Dippy was... We, we did loads of planning. You know, as you know, it was the logistics, the organization, the terrain, getting the camera traps. Everything had to be in place. But right up to the wire, I was making a decision on whether we should go based on the on the, on the the situation. You know, and I had a big power with the guys on the team, the, the guys, um, people, uh, you know, like Richard and Chris and, mm. and Dave from the CFZ. I was saying to them, you know, is this 
something that we really want to do, but we were all committed by that stage. Yeah. We were in, we were in, and so it was time to bite the bullet and go. So it took a lot, a lot, a lot of time, a lot of preparation, but there was also a really, really heavy assessment of potential risk. The, the, you know, I was, I felt about the, the risk more than I'd felt since the Congo that we were taking on something there. Yeah, yeah. Sounds troubling. Jesus, wow. Mm. See, this yeah, is... it was intense. It was intense. You know, as I wandered through Tura Town, Dippy said, well, you know, a bomb went off here, and it was like in the bakery. And, and not to be flippant, but I was thinking, well, the bakery is the best place for food, man. It could have bombed somewhere <laughs> yeah. else, you know. <laughs> but that's like gallows humor, you know what I mean? Because you're thinking, well, there's something going to kick off here. <laughs> I mean, fortunately, no, like, fortunately, it didn't. There was, the, we, 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 were, um, we were very well cared for, and, and and, and, and the local people were brilliant. But, I mean, I'll give you an example. When we wandered into the jungle where, where Not Correct National Park is, mm-hmm. um, when we went off this thing, the headman of the village said, well, where are they going? And uh, I said, well, we're going to Yon Jungle. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Where do you think we're going, man? We're passing your village and we're going out to the jungle. And he said, well, be careful how far you go because there could be a terrorist. The terrorist group is, it could well be down there, you know? Yeah. So, so we had to weigh it all up. And um, I, I never felt, I can't say that I never felt in any danger, but I did before I went, if you know what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. Let's try and, like, take people into this thing. Well, well, obviously, we talked last year about the Himalayas, how it was sort of like hot at the bottom and it got colder and stuff. And, and obviously, mm. when you're looking for the uh, for the Orang Pendek in Sumatra, it's pretty, you know, it's in like sort of a rainforesty jungle conditions, uh, if I mm. recall correctly. So what, what was the, you know, what was the makeup of, of this expedition as far as that goes? And what kind of terrain and, and, and environment were you, were you having to, you know, deal with? It was hilly mountain jungle. I mean, again, I'd planned it carefully because uh, doing your research is important to go at the right time. Mm-hmm. And uh, initially, I'd wanted to go as soon as I could possibly get it together. So I was, I, I was initially speculating about going in sort of June and around there. But, but Dipu basically said, well, if you go then, it, the whole place is going to be flooded. And I saw evidence <laughs> of that when I went to this amazing place called Balpakram, which, which I've, I've got to tell you about. But ask me about it in a second because mm-hmm. it's, it's an awesome place, Tim. Um, the, you, you saw what there was no substantive roads yeah uh, there was nothing there we had these four-wheel drives and like one of them was knackered and broke down as soon as we tried to get out of places so the earliest time i could go there was in the dry season which as you rightly say is the end of october beginning of november so i took my first pitch i could get to get out there because uh, you know i wanted one of the things about expeditions i wanted to be out there as quick as i can and to to, to be the to be probably the first people to do substantive research that was important for me then because i put all that time and effort in and i wanted to get out there as quick as i could and and, and see as much as i could so november yeah. had to be the time yeah yeah because i'm sure you know the more you think about it and stuff it's like you you just can't wait to get out there pretty much oh yeah absolutely you're there you know when you, you, you the excitement's building up and you and you know you're getting nearer and nearer to the time lots of things are happening you've got the logistics you've paid out the money yeah you've yeah. you've got your equipment you're reading all these bulletins dippy sending me these things oh i'm really sorry but um x y and z has blown up do you still want to come and i'm thinking yeah by that stage by the time it got to then obviously i consider my team and we consider the risk and we all talk about it but by then I, I sent him a mail just before I left and I said I don't care what's going on we're coming man we're really, you know? nice nice yeah absolutely and, and, and sort of also uh, to throw back to that anticipation thing plus you know it's a, it's a pretty fresh sort of case in a way it's a pretty fresh creature mm-hmm. I guess you could say like you said there's barely any information out there on it so to be 
down there and really providing so much info for data gathering, I guess you could say, expedition is, is you know, remarkable. That's right. I mean, I think one of the things that really struck me when I went out there, I mean, I'll, I'll mention Bob Packram now because it gives you the sort okay. of context of what I'm talking about. We interviewed a number of people, um, eyewitnesses, um, forest rangers, etc. But one of the things I noticed when I went to ask for, because I had to ask for special permission to go to some of the places, and that, yeah. that meant liaising with um, government officials from India who were very helpful. No, I mean, I, I haven't got a bad word to say about anybody who helped us. They were all fantastic. But I noticed on the surveys that um, it said, well, based on 30% of um, uh, uh, of creatures surveyed so it talked about you know i don't know um what creatures were native to the area so say a red panda yeah yeah uh, and it gave a list of species and so i said to one of the forest rangers you know why only 30 percent he said well he said, that's all we've surveyed because that's the resources we have wow and when i went to um i went to this place called balpakram and this amazing valley and the local people um the garo tribes believe that's that's the, the, the sort of key word, the key area to paradise, yeah, and it's intensely beautiful. It's like this grand, this amazing canyon, 15 kilometers across, which is wedged with beautiful jungle on a cliff face. It's awesome to see. Uh, I, 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 you know, I can't emphasize to you enough, if you get an opportunity, go, Tim. When you've done that jogging with me, well, I'll take you. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, I mean, I stood on the edge of that, and I said, I said to uh, Rudy, who's my forest guide there, I said, well, what's down there? And he said, well, we don't really know. We've got an idea, you know, a few hunters have been down there, but and, you know, on the edge of it, but there's no reason for people to go, so we, we actually don't know a lot about it. Uh, and you just think, well, um, man, I'm here, you know. <laughs> I'm here, and, and, and I'm, I'm in one of these places in the world, which is not really that well explored or not really that well surveyed. So when people sit at home thinking, well, you know, um, all these places must be well covered and well combed, well, I can tell you that a couple of months, well, six weeks, five, five weeks ago, I was in an area where, which isn't that well surveyed, where people don't really know what's down there, which is incredibly beautiful, untraversed jungle packed full of, of, of species. I've seen it, man. They're still there. Amazing. Yeah. It's, it's, it's remarkable to wrap your mind around that. We had John Kassar on. We were talking about areas mm. in the Siberian realm that sort of have that attribute too so it's mm. it, it's remarkable to think about these pockets and that you're going there and that you you know and they yeah, and that you're actually going there and, and and setting foot into these places is is remarkable so obviously you're on the hunt of the mandy barung i probably mm -hmm. is that close no that's it that's nice you've wow it. you picked it up <laughs> so you're on the hunt for the mandy barung i guess mm. i was impressed by you know, and I, I feel like we're going to sort of go wildly, you know, chronologically all over the place here in this conversation. Yeah, that's cool. That, that's that's, fine. I mean, that's what is, we do when we chat. And yeah, it's exactly. Good. This is, this is you know, just imagine me and Adam with, with a beer and a little table. That's about... Yeah, that's <laughs> it. That's exactly how it is. Uh, <laughs> the extent of the conversation. So what... what I was impressed when I looked, uh, when I was reading your journal, at just how rich the evidence was that was there you know what i mean it's like it's like, almost like this stuff was waiting for someone to come and, and investigate because you guys said you had two footprint sightings uh and a, it sounded like the one that you had was fairly fresh like uh you know you saw yeah. some crabs around and looked like a rock had been thrown so i mean this thing could have been there like five minutes ago i i was really impressed by the evidence i mean even even um w one of the things i was seriously worried about before i went was that was that I, w I was concerned that there hadn't been a huge amount of, of eyewitness sightings mm -hmm. recently. And when, uh, unlike the Arang Pandak, which, which the sightings, I think, it's fair to say, are fairly common, yeah? Um, 
and, and that was one of the things I was, I was, I was investigating. And what I didn't want to happen was, was what happened to me when, um, or, or I hoped wouldn't happen, was when I went to Mongolia and I looked for the Almas, when I became convinced, uh, if you recall, that they were on the edge, if not past the point of extinction. It, you know, it was really all, it's really all over for those in the, them in those mountains. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want that to happen here, but I had real reservations. And Dipu had said, well, I said to him, well, what do you estimate the population to be? And he said, well, maybe it's only about 10. Oh, wow. But, uh, you know, and I thought, well, it's all over for here, too, you know, that was when I, before I went. But having been there, um, I'm, I'm much more convinced that, that um, the population of these creatures, and I'll talk about what I think there may be later, if, if you don't mind. Yeah. But, 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 but in answer to your specific question, yeah, we found quite an, an, a lot of evidence. I mean, I, I, I interviewed quite, uh, some of the eyewitnesses, and I gave them a real grilling, and again, I'll describe the creature, but... Yeah, uh, well, there was one particular incident, again, at Knockrack, near where we set up the camera traps, and it was quite good, actually, because it was filmed um, as it happened, you know. So it wasn't like, oh, we come back later and this is what I found. It was filmed there and then at the time. Mm-hmm. And and the, the BBC, if, I hope they decide to use it. I don't have editorial control, but I thought it made a really good sequence because <clears throat> I was, I was, we were going up to, to take the camera traps down at the end of our expedition, um, and I found what looked to be Mandiburung prints. Now, you can't be certain. It was difficult because they were in a, a very shallow um, river system. But I said, look, you can see the toe indents. You can see what looks to be a, a very large bipedal print, and you can see it moving along. And then I said, well, you know, let me speculate right now that um, if it's walking along here, a lot of the eyewitnesses and a lot of the, go- the, the locals have told me that what it does is it looks for freshwater crabs. So we should hopefully see some evidence of that. Took 10 paces, and there was a large overturned boulder, and you could see it had been recently overturned because you could see the tide mark on the water. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so, so say, for example, it's cut in half, and you could see the dry half and the wet half. Are you yeah. with me? So you could see that. And then I said, well, maybe it's been looking for freshwater crabs. And then Rudy, who's five paces in front of me, says, Adam, here's some crab debris. So everything I said that, that could happen as a sequence when I was speculating it actually happened live, if you know what I mean. Yeah, exactly. So, so, so it looked really good and it was very exciting we were like i had this you know sometimes when i've talked to you before when you have this buzz when you're on on, on the trail of, of, of something i had it a couple of times when i was in sumatra on the orang pendek last time when yeah. i was with dave who saw it and before when i found the prints i really thought shit you know we might actually have something on the camera trap we didn't unfortunately but we did have some very live evidence of it as it was walking through and you're absolutely right to say yeah it, it was fresh it had been there within the last two days yeah it must be exhilarating too because you you yeah, know, it know. was. It was so exciting. Yeah, it was. You know, you get that heart-pounding feeling, and you think, you know, it's been here, man. It's, been, it's actually been here. Yeah, yeah. You can see that. Um, and so, you know, we, we bagged and tagged the crab debris. Maybe we can get some DNA off it. We've sent it off to Lars Thomas. It's a very slim chance, Tim, very slim chance. But you've got to take those chances, haven't you? Maybe it's got a bit of saliva on there, and we might get something out of it. I think it's very slim, but, I, I, you know, I'll roll the dice on it, and we'll see what happens. Awesome, awesome. Now, we haven't actually, uh, and you, you sort of alluded to this just now, we haven't actually dug into the Mandy Barung and what it is and what people describe it as. So let's sort of like bring people up to date on that so they have an idea of what you were actually looking for. Yeah, well, there, there are stories about the Mandy Barung being a large um, bipedal, as in walks on two legs creature. Um, and it, it, there were consistent reports that, that it was... It was um, covered in black hair for one of a better picture and and Dippy when I got there said seemed to say it was an opportunist feeder. 
what was interesting about it when we went there is, yeah, we confirmed the eyewitness reports, and I'll give you a, a sort of smorgasbord for one of a better word of some of the things that really <laughs> strike me about the people that kind of I interviewed. And the, the first one, I interviewed a couple of people who'd seen it, um, you know, quite a considerable time ago. I mean, one man was was an old an older guy who'd seen it sort of maybe 40, 50 years ago, and he described um, how he had walked through a bamboo forest and, 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 and it charged them. Oh, wow. Um, uh, and, you know, and he, 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 for want of a better word, um, no scientific term, he basically shit himself and ran off. You know, into the <laughs> As you would if something nine feet tall is chasing you. you know? Yeah. Uh, um, uh, and one of, one of the guys described how it was, it was, it was an awesome, actually. It was an awesome uh, bit of, of interview because... I spoke to this guy who was a really little guy. He was about five foot, five foot two or three. Uh, mm-hmm. And I said to him what happened, and he was telling me the story. And this is just snapshots of things, and because well, I'll build you to a picture in a minute. But he, 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 I sort of said to him, you know, he said, oh, and I heard it call. I said, well, describe the call. Because I was trying to test him. I said, you know, I gave, we talked about various animals uh, that, that are native to the area, you know, like gibbons and langurs. And I showed all, the, all these yeah. people pictures of, of indigenous species. And I said, was it this? Was it this? Trying to scrutinize them. I spent a long time on these, these interviews. Again, these are only snapshots. And then suddenly, from out of this, out of this little tiny frame come this booming, ooh, ooh, I can't even do it. But it's like, it really knocked me off my feet. I was like, shit, where does that come from? <laughs> <laughs> This guy. And then there was this other guy who was, you know, who who described to me how he'd seen in the 60s an arm um, of of, of one in a marketplace. And there'd been this big crowd because they have a lot of local markets there. And he described how he'd seen this huge black arm in the marketplace. It'd probably been snared or something and had broken off from the the snare. And, uh, and he described how it was black with, with fingers and fingernails, and it was massive, and, it's, and it still sticks in his mind all these years later. He'd never seen anything like it. Yeah. Now, that was all great, but these are all old sightings. And then I came on to, to very recent sightings. Uh, I, I particularly interviewed this uh, eyewitness who'd seen a mother and child um, again um, eating bamboo well, there's talk about eating fruit and bamboo it's a, it seems to be an, an opportunist feeder and uh, they've been pulling bamboo shoots out and what's just, just to jump in what's just to, an opportunist feeder what's that just like he'll, he'll, he'll eat whatever they can find yeah, whatever they can find. They seem to specialize in fruit, bamboo, and, and, and things like that. And, and as I said, the crabs. Um, but, but, but it'll snack as it moves through the jungle, for one of a bad word. Okay. You know what I mean by that? Yeah. So, so whatever's around. Um, uh, but that, and that was very recent. That's been in the last couple of years. was encouraged by that. And then I spent some time with this guy called Nelberson, who was an eyewitness. He'd seen it over several days. Oh, wow. And he, I mean, he described how he'd seen one build a nest a ground-dwelling oval nest. Oh, wow. And, it, uh, and he'd seen it and he'd come back to it on several days. And uh, I'll tell you more about him in a minute. Um, and, and, um, and, and we, you know, I spent a lot of time with him and we went down to the, to the riverbed area um, near where he'd seen uh, the Mandy Barung. And I really gave him a massive grilling, asking him, checking out any inconsistencies in his stories, cross-referencing what he'd said and challenging him. But he was absolutely convinced that he'd seen it. You know, this is a guy who spends loads of time in the jungle. Um, 
uh, and um, you know, afterwards we, I, you know, we relaxed because I gave him quite a hard time, and I said, you know, I respect you, but I need to be objective about this research uh, and go through all this. And then he pulls out this massive bamboo pipe, and he says, "No, now we're friends, yeah." This massive bamboo pipe is full of some like wicked local tobacco, yeah. Oh, he, says, he says, "You've got to have a smoke with me of this stuff now," and he lights these coals at the front of it, and uh, and we ended. I ended up like taking a massive lungful of this, and like practically throwing my guts out but that cemented our friendship do you know what I mean exactly <laughs> but, yeah oh my god but, but, but in all seriousness the the, um, the eyewitness reports all seem to describe in synopsis a large black bipedal when I say large about 9 foot tall mm-hmm. uh, footprints about 12 13 inches maybe larger I need to measure them because as I say I've only been back a few weeks so I need to go through my photographs um, uh, bipedal creature um, that Bill's ground dwelling nest that can exhibit interestingly, and this is something that hadn't not been seemed to be picked up before, aggressive behaviour. You know, gorillas can sometimes do mock charges when they're disturbed. Yeah, and, and, and it all pointed to me to to the idea that, in my own view, it was something akin to a relic Gigantopithecus. So, in other words, a creature that, as you know, lived lived in in that area. Um, many thousands of years ago, could it be some derivative or subspecies that still lives in very remote, um, largely untraversed jungle um, in that area? Uh, it's, it's not um, sophisticated. It has no tool use, for example, and I don't think it has any any fire. Um, it would be very quickly discovered if it does. But it seemed more gorilla-like, only bipedal. That's the easiest way to describe it. Yeah. Okay. All right. Given that how you described the, the, the locals there is kind of small, do you think that maybe the size of the thing could be exaggerated just because they're sm- so small compared to the average, you know, American and English, you know, Western person? I think that's, I think that that's a good point. I think it, <clears throat> when you see something that you've never seen before, that, that is shocking. Yeah, I remember, I remember the first time I saw a gorilla um, in the Congo, it was picking its nose from the top of the tree, um, watching me yeah? Yeah. as I paraded across um, Lake Tele. And I remember thinking, oh, that's magnificent. But your, your, natural, your natural inclination is to exaggerate something yeah. um, that you, you see for the first time. And you do that with all eyewitnesses. But remember, I've spent seven years of my, of my life cross-examining eyewitnesses for that's a living. True. So, so I can, I can, whilst you're right, I can take that into consideration. So, yeah, if somebody says to me, well, it was 20 foot tall or whatever else, I'm not inclined to do that. Because, <laughs> yeah. You know, that's kind of, for me, that's kind of outside the realms of, 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 of credibility um, when they're describing uh, that sort of creature. Some people would, would, would disagree with me, but, but I'm only saying what I think as a, as a field researcher in, in, yeah. in that area. Um, but but there does seem to be a consistent description that it's considerably larger than 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 um, a European. And to, to your point, I'm about six foot tall. Okay. And when I spoke to the eyewitnesses and I asked them to describe how tall it was, they 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 consistently said much bigger than you, and put their put their hands maybe two or three feet above my head. There you go. Okay. So 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 they were they were quite. I was quite specific on that point, and I was quite specific on the detail of it. Went through what it looked like. Went through its facial expressions, how it moved, how it walked, what it ate, um, what it looked like. 
all these sort of details. You know, each interview would 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 I'd be with these people for normally a, you know a couple of hours. You yeah. Because I'd do an interview, then I would walk around the area. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. Ask exactly. Odd question. Yeah. So I didn't just sort of say, um, thank, "One bum, thank you, ma'am." It, yeah, like it, bring him into a room and. <laughs> yeah, bring him into a room, have a bit of a chat, cup of tea, and off you go. No, we were with them a while. I needed to get under their skin. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, have them open up a little bit to you and trust you. You know, you never know. You know, it's kind of yeah, like exactly, come friends yeah. and they talk more. That, yeah, exactly. That's what that's what smoking the pipe with um, Nelbison was all about. It's not because I wanted to um, have some gut gut wrenching. <laughs> <laughs> it was because I wanted him to feel that you know I wanted to listen to what he had to say. At the same time as asking him some quite difficult questions, I I wanted to listen to him. And you know, I, I'm conscious of the starting point. Sure, people who are who are skeptical about these things may say, "Well, you want to believe." And 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 that's true. I wouldn't I wouldn't detract from that. But I also, on my time and my my money, want to be as objective as I can. And I can tell you now, if I, if I thought it was a load of crap, I'd be I'd be telling you, well, Tim, it was a load of crap, you know, exactly, yeah. bugger all. And I've said that before, as you know, I said it with Loch Ness. I don't believe the Loch Ness monster exists. I went there, didn't find any evidence, and I said so. So I've got a track record on it. And if and I'm not, I, I don't believe fairies shoot around every corner. You know what I mean? If exactly. it, if, it, if the evidence is there. I'll say so. If it's not, I won't. I guess extrapolate a little bit on this. On this, uh, I think you said Nelberson, cat. Because uh, I was interested. You, you said he, you know, he saw this thing build a little, a little shelter, if you will, for mm. over the course of a few days. I, I guess you know, talk more about his sighting because that sounds, you know, he must have been really kind of hiding out there to, to watch this thing. Or how did it all come about? Well, what, what happened was. Um, he lives here, he lives in a village on the edge of Knockrek National Park. Um, and what he basically did was he went to the he was he was he, he came across it by chance. Yeah. Of course. He was he was he wandered off to a banana he was gonna get some banana leaves. Um and he but he went to a place uh, on the edge of an old banana plantation, which is a considerable distance from from his village. So it wasn't a place that villagers commonly went to. Right. Now Nelberson is an unusual character in the sense that He's a, he's a great tracker and, and, and research. You know, he's a man who spends a lot of time in the jungle. So to him, it wasn't a big trek, but to, to the villagers wouldn't have bothered going there normally. So it's, it's, so it's remote, uh, in other words. Mm-hmm. And when he was there, that was when he stumbled across one. He was on a ridge, and he, and, and he saw one um, down below him. The, the, the Garrow Hills are very hilly, but, you know, relatively speaking, small hills. It's not like the Himalayas, you yeah. know, not big mountains. It's hills. And he saw it, and that was when he saw it. And he, and he saw it, he watched it for a while, and then he was afraid. And he came back the next day, and it was still there, and it built this nest. Came back the next day, and um, it was moving off, yeah? So he Weird. saw it move off into the distance. So, you know, and it's the only time in his life when he's seen it and he longs for the time to do it again. All the witnesses um, talk about one of the most overpowering things is because it's so large, people are very afraid when they see it. They're very afraid. Oh, yeah. And and one of the things that you get is is this this sense of fear. So, you know, he, he, he was... And he's a tough bloke. He was the hardest man I met in the Garrett Hills. But he was he was afraid. I mean, the guy who was he was eating the who described how he was eating the bamboo. He said, "Well, I didn't want to hang around for too long. I was frightened it would see me. It had a baby with me, and I, you know, yeah. if it had seen me, I was frightened it would kill me." Yeah. Um, that that was what I was going to ask you about about this guy. Did he? I presume then that the creature didn't see him. Obviously, no, it didn't see him because he was at an angle of elevation. Yeah. So he's in the hill above it, and he's looking down on it, um, and he's obviously gone down. You know, lying down on, 
flat. So he's taking a risk, yeah. but it's much harder for, for the creature to see him. It would physically have to look in his direction and the jungle to, to see him than it is for him to see it, if you know what I mean. Exactly. Because yeah. he was spotting it from the angle of elevation. Mm-hmm. He was the person who was up above, and you'll know that from any anybody who's walking in the hills would say, well, it's much easier to see people down below than it is for them to see you. They have to be in, they have to look at you. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that was why he was able to observe it. And now, of course, when he went the second time, he knew or hoped he'd see it in exactly the same place in the right. head. Right, exactly. Based on what I'm hearing from you over the last few years, and, and you know, based on the more I look into these these bipedal primates, for lack of a better term, you know, all these different creatures all around the world, it seems like maybe they're very migrational creatures, and that might be a big part of why it's so hard for people to get a handle on them or to ever, you know, prove their existence because they're always on the move, if you will. Uh, you that's know, maybe a very some good point. Of, some circuit of you of some kind. Yeah, I think that's a very, very good point. And one of the things, you know, I'd like to do at some point is go into Bhutan because Meghalaya, where I was, isn't far from the Bhutan area. As you know, in Bhutan, the the, um, the, the king of Bhutan um, has has a, has a reserve um, for yetis. Yeah, so so there's oh, a wow. national park there um, because you know the Bhutanese believe in it, and and so they've preserved a vast area of jungle. And one of the things that, that could be possible through this is a speculative point because I've not been there and I don't don't normally speculate until I've been to a place. But because I've been nearby, I'm going to stick my neck out a bit. Is could um, the Mandibarung be a um, a population that, that, as you say, transits and migrates between um, Meghalaya through Assam into Bhutan? So could it go? Could it go in, in a jungle or gone corridor and, and, and move around? I mean, these areas, as I say, of jungle are so vast and, and untraversed. I can't see any reason why um, why it wouldn't. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's, it's easier for it to do so because it isn't confined to, to isolated pockets, or there's no reason why it should be. So yeah, I think I think it's very very possible in that particular reason region that it does do that and it does move around to a large degree and of course as you say that makes it um, extremely difficult to spot they're still going to be extremely rare uh, um, but uh, it also it's encouraging by the same token because if it's got a vast area to to move around um, then that makes its population more sustainable like you said extremely rare so that means essentially like uh, you know you talk to some eyewitnesses but it wasn't so prevalent that it was you just talked to like anybody and they'd seen it kind of thing. No, no. I mean, it, when I when I go, obviously I'm concentrating my efforts in Sumatra and I've been there so many times. But when I go to Sumatra, um, the, the, there's you know Sahar, who's my forest guide, sends me regular reports of people who've seen the orang pendak. You know. Uh, yeah, you know, so it's more it's more the, the, frequent down there for the yeah, for that not not a couple of months go by when someone hasn't seen one in that particular area where I go to. <laughs> that's not the case in this part of okay. India, but that's that's plausible and explained by the fact that um, ju- it's just so vast this jungle, and you know it would only come to specific areas for food sources when it suited it. So that was why it was encouraging. You know, I went, as I say to you, Tim, I went with the with the expectation that I was going to find um, a population in terminal decline. And, and, you know, that was my view even when I got to Tiora, which is like the base camp on the edge of it. And it wasn't the case. Um, far from it. I'm pretty optimistic now. Yeah, yeah. Based on what, you know, you brought back from the, from the event, it seems like, uh, from the expedition, I mean, it seems like th- this is the kind of thing that if you – if you had the resources and you had the time, that it could be quite, you know, a vein of serious information and, and 
quite an area that would explode uh, with information. I mean, this this thing sounds like it's, uh, I guess, more within reach almost, just because so few people have gone looking for it down there. Yeah, there are a couple of specific areas now which I'd go, and if I had the, the time and money, I'd camera trap, camera trap to death. Yeah, yeah. For one of a word, I'd, I'd, I'd send um, teams in to to three specific areas I've identified, and I, I would I would just be all over them. And exactly where they are now, I spent um, a lot of time traveling hundreds of kilometers around the Megalaya area, area, identifying likely places. And you can, whilst you can never say, oh, yeah, you know, it's, it's foolish to say, you know, if I went back right now, I'd bring back yeah. photos of it. Because you set yourself up for a fall. But, but what I can say is, if I went back with a lot of resources, I'm, I'm, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd be surprised if I didn't. So. Yeah, or at least come out with some, you know, even better you know, uh, evidence, evidence. You know. yeah, yeah, that's a good point, you know, each time I go to Sumatra or Revising, I, I get better and I get more evidence, it'd be it'd probably be the same with India. Yeah. Now, I believe like last year when we talked, we sort of walked a little bit through the actual expedition in the sense of, you know, without getting into a specific day by day, but, you know, the trip was like three weeks long, so how long did it take you from when you left London to when you were actually on the expedition? I mean, it sounds like you probably had to do a lot of sort of hopping around as you got further and further away from civilization, if you will, or maybe not, like you're saying. No, not that much, because what I'd done was, was, was I planned what I'd done with Dipu, because when you're planning these expeditions, it's all about maximizing your time. Mm-hmm. Yeah? And what I didn't want to do... Um, as much as possible is spend time waiting around, yeah? Right. Um, uh, I don't mind sightseeing, and, you know, we had a, I had a day at the end where I had to wait for my flight and I'll go see stuff. But it's not about that. I'm not on holiday. <laughs> I'm on expedition. And, and, it was, and it's about maximizing your time. So what I had was a daily itinerary, which I planned day by day, which were, which would take in terrain, eyewitnesses, um, sampling of evidence, and as much as possible, I tried to make it very, very clear um, that I would maximize my time. So I flew into Delhi. The next day I'm out to Meghalaya. I had the jeeps already waiting for me at the airport of Guwahati to whisk me up there. Oh, nice. Um, met Dipu in Tura and my forest guys, and the next day I'm out, yeah, and then I'm in the jungle with my team. So, so we pick up our food supplies, um, and off we go. Uh, and, and there's no, there's no, uh, to use a Northern British expression, mucking around. That means wasting time. Yeah. You know, we're out there and we're doing it. Okay, nice. All right, yeah. But some of the other expeditions, you do run into that sort of thing, right? Don't you? Where you have to, like, yeah, you know, well, stop at the village and, and then you go to the next sort of stage till oh, you get God. in there. Yeah, and I think to some degree it's a cultural thing. It's, yeah. Yeah, again, it's a good question because, for example, in the Congo, <clears throat> it's very important that, you, you, you know, they have um, chefs. Um, with the local chiefs in each particular village you go to and you, you you know it's a custom that you wait to see them and have an audience with them so I could be sitting around for a few hours in the baking heat before some guy had deigned to see me then he'd sign my paperwork and then off I'd go you know and yeah. that, that's the way it is um, I, I spent four hours waiting for Marcelo Ignana while he got cha- in the Congo while he got changed into his suit <laughs> just like oh you know, so so yeah, you're absolutely. It depends on the area, and it also it can depend on the local official in Mongolia. <clears throat> that guy who nicked me on the border post, <clears throat> yeah, because um, he wanted to extort money from me, and um, he made me wait a whole day while he arrested me. You know, <laughs> when I bust 
lifted his ass to that general and, and said, you know, and said, you know, you can fuck off. I'm not giving you any money. But he let me go. So, but I had none of that. I had none of that shit in, in, um, in, in India. I, I did have to speak to local officials to get permission, but, but they were fine. They, they had no problem with what I was doing. And, um, you know, I, I, what I'd also done again was advanced planning. So I'd written my letters of permission, asking for permission before I went. Um, they'd been sent off to the, the officials and they granted it before I went. So I wasn't um, waiting three days for a letter because my letters had already gone. That must be pretty amazing then because th- then you must have been in there for about three weeks on the whole expedition, right? Is that about how long it lasted? Yeah, roughly speaking, yeah. I mean, I can't remember on a day-to-day basis. Again, I'd have to go through yeah. my stuff. And it doesn't usually matter. But yeah, no, it was it was concentrated. Uh, there was no downtime. It's not what I wanted to do. I said to the team before I went, you know, we're going we're gonna to be it's going to be hard. You're not going to have leisure days or days off where, you know, you discover yourselves in the jungle. Or something <laughs> like, you know, none of that sort of crap. There's going to be no swinging through vines. It's like, it's like down to business. Um, right. We did have one day um, when we went, because it was kind of compulsory, where we went to the Wangala Festival, which is the, 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 the main festival of the Garo people. It's called the Hundred Drums Festival. It was, it was awesome, actually. Um, and and the, uh, we, were, we were lucky that we were arranged to be VIP guests there, and the chief minister of Meghalaya um, at the ceremony gave me some of this rice wine. Yeah. Oh, nice. <laughs> and, and they all turn out, and eventually it becomes 100 drums because they start little teams of 10 from all the villages, and they have a competition as to who's, who are the best drummers and dancers in the villages. And it's amazing to see. Oh, yeah. uh, a fantastic festival. And the place was packed with thousands of people. So we kind of had a day off to do that, and we had to do that, A, because we wanted to, but B, because we had to show respect to the local people and their customs. And they wanted to be there, and we could not insist that we spent another day in the jungle. Uh, and also, it helps you to understand from an anthropological point of view um, their customs. And if you understand their customs and traditions, it makes it easier to be a researcher. So it's important as well. And I enjoyed it. It was a buzz. You know, we had a dance with the drums. What more could you say? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's like, you know, that's an experience in a show that very few people can say they've seen, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and... Um, uh, yeah, and it was a good, it was a good laugh, and there were some. Um, we met some uh, French Gibbon researchers, some young ladies there, so there some other bonuses as well. There you go, nice. <laughs> <laughs> just to go back to the the whole three weeks aspect, just I mean, just folks, think about that for a minute, because you know, you go on a vacation. I've gone on vacations, and these are vacations that are like a week mm. long, and by the time they're over, you're like, I really. You know, I've just had about enough of Southern California, and and I'm ready. <laughs> I'd like to go to Southern California. I'm not going to have enough of it, but I'll, I'll understand what you say. Try it for a couple of weeks. That's that's kind of the point I'm trying to make. Imagine like three after three weeks, you're just about ready to go home, no matter where you are. I think so. I mean, that's <laughs> that's pretty remarkable to to tough it out that long. I, I think I'd go a little crazy. Oh well, I've been longer than that. You know, like I was a month in the jungle in the Congo, um, in the jungle, which is harder than India. Uh, and when the, the equation I could say was, say, um, say you slept rough for a month in your local woods, yeah, um, eating, um, I don't know, monkey and bugs and all that, you'd, yeah. feel, like, you'd feel pretty shitty. But, but if, you, if, you, if it's a month in the Congo where you've got disease on top and people are trying to shoot you, then, then you're going to feel pretty knackered. And one of the weirdest things for me is then I go back to my day job. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like I remember coming back from there. Um, uh, to, uh, and, you know, it, let, let's talk about Christmas because when I was there and um, I was in the Congo, um, I was stood 
across the Umbangi River. Across the Umbangi River, there was fighting, there was a civil war going on. And I was with some missionaries who were really nice people. And they asked me to take some letters home for their family, post them to the U.S. And they were American missionaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was doing that. But m- me and the, and the other two guys I was with um, were, were, were around this little Christmas tree that they got, one of these little artificial trees that they got from home. And we were singing, Silent Night. And then in the background, you could hear... <laughs> you know, this gun, holy night. And then this artillery flare goes overhead and it's like, wow. I'm shit. It's like apocalypse now. I'm thinking, I, I'm thinking, I just want to get that flight home <laughs> for Christmas. <laughs> so every time I hear Silent Night now, I always think of that. I always think of that when I was there. So, yeah, there's been some pretty, pretty intense times. Yeah. I guess, I guess, what did you bring back aside from the eyewitness reports and everything else? Uh, about the Manny Barong. What did you bring back from India that we could look forward to hearing about, you know, analyze, I guess you could say? There are a couple of really significant things. Mm-hmm. Sure, we brought back, I mean, I've, I've already touched on the eyewitnesses' reports, yeah. and they're great. Um, we brought back um, a couple of other things. Dipu um, found some hairs, which he said may be from the Mandi Barung previously. I'm not so sure. They look quite different. The two of them look quite different that he gave us, three of them he gave us. But we're going to get those analyzed by um, Lars Thomas, um, who's... Um, uh, uh, who does the who does, who does scientific analysis from the University of Copenhagen? He's going to analyse those. We also brought back some bone samples, um, which again we speculate maybe or maybe not from Mandiburong. We're going to get all those analysed. I, I, I'm cautious about them, but you, you know you've got to analyse them, Tim, because if somebody says, well, they may be from the Mandiburong, you bag them, tag them, and send them off as right. a field researcher. That's what you do, um, and you, you leave it to the scientists to analyse. That's really important. I, of course, I have my only opinions on things but at the end of the day what matters is independent objective scientific evidence that's the only way you're going to prove new species that's the only way you're going to ultimately preserve the environment which is what i'm about yeah so that's all that and that's on the money barong one thing that i was really interesting um which was kind of kind of a curveball was this we went to um we went to interview um some of the academics, because we, were under, we wanted to understand the history of, um, of the Manly Barung. Yeah. And one of the guys we interviewed was a guy called Llewellyn Marek. Now, we went to his house, and his father had lots of tro- uh, hunting trophies of horns um, of, of various um, beasts. Mm-hmm. And he'd no doubt um, got when he was hunting, you know, antlers and things like that on the walls. Now, John McGowan, who was, who was, who was on uh, the team, he's, uh, he's an expert, in, amongst other things, he's an expert on deer species. And we're, we're, we're sat there. I, I, did, I did an interview with uh, Llewellyn for camera. And then John looks up and he goes, oh, my God, what's that? Yeah, and, he's, and he's, <laughs> he suddenly goes, like, really excited. And he basically said, well, that to me looks like a completely new species of deer. And you could clearly see, because if you, you had a monk jack deer next to it, which and they originally said it was a monk jack, but it was like, this new species, this what looks to be a new species, was like its horns were like three times the size of the other one, and and like John's trembling, you know, <laughs> he's like, wow. oh my god, yeah. So 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 I think you know, again we've taken um, we've taken a sample of, of of the of the bone there for DNA analysis to Lars, 
but we could, that could well be a new species of deer, which would be a nice curveball, you know, it would be something very significant. And that was exactly what happened in Vietnam when the new species of, of, of deer was found there. Um, researchers went in, as, this is my understanding anyway, researchers went to see a hunter, saw, said, what's the, those antlers on the wall? And lo and behold, it was a new species. So if I had to, you know, if, we're doing a mystic ball thing here, you know. Tim and Adam's mystic prophecy <laughs> might happen on the expedition. But if, <laughs> if you're asking me to say, well, what's the most likely thing? I'd say, yeah, we found probably found a new species of deer. Not based on any, I can't say credit for it. It was John McGowan who, who saw it. Yeah, it's nice that it was on the expedition that I led, but it was his discovery. I'll make that clear. But, uh, but, but I think that that's very likely right now. Very likely subject to tests. Wow. That's, see, that's, that's amazing. Just, uh, <laughs> and getting comical in a slight sort of way, just like, you yeah, know, yeah. you went to see, to find the evidence of the Mandy Barung, but we ended up, you know, finding a whole new species of deer. Like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And, and John deserved it because, uh, that's the, as I said, the guys couldn't do enough for us yet. Um, but there were seven um, Brits on the expedition. There were a couple of camera crew and there were, um, there were five of us. And I think of the seven of us, six of us, um, for want of a better word, got the shits at some <laughs> point. Yeah, and poor old John had suffered more than anyone. Yeah. Ah, oh, jeez. Um, you know, a couple of his pair, pairs of pants had gone south by that stage, and he was feeling particularly low. So it came a good time for John to cheer him up. <laughs> <laughs> he won't mind me saying that because we joked about it. <laughs> All right. This shit is fucking crazy. I heard some growling and shit out in the yard. So my roommate and I, we go to check this shit out. I look up in the tree, and there's the fucking king of the jungle. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Even though my anus was broken, I knew that the rest of our journey would be great success. Now, you said, uh, I think you said the BBC was filming this. Is this uh, something that people are going to be able to see in the future? Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, there was there was there was there was a camera crew there, so I hope they'll see. It. I don't know whether it's going to be a standalone documentary. I think it's going to be part of a part of a, of a more generic one about cryptozoology in general. So I think it might feature other people, not just the people I was with on on the expedition, but also. Um, other people who are involved in cryptozoology, for example. I don't know whether they'll use all of these people, but I know John Kirk was interviewed, and he's a sound bloke. Um, I know Jan Sundberg was also interviewed, and um, I know that they interviewed those fools from Georgia, you know, um, those guys, the Bigfoot ho hoaxer guys. Oh, no. Uh, yeah. But, but I think what they were doing was looking for a contrast yeah. of, of people who were serious about the stuff and idiots who are not. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so I don't mind them interviewing them. Um, they were very clear about the context in which yeah, um, that, yeah, exactly. they would portray things. And you've got to you've got to do the yin and the yang, haven't you? Um, so uh, it may be part of the general one. But as I say, you know what it's like with these things. You don't have any editorial control. You go with these guys and, and you see what happens. So I, I have no responsibilities for the final cut. I just hope the things that um, I felt were really significant will be there. But the film crew weren't there for, the, for, for, for John's discovery. Um, um, so... Um, I think they might have been there for part of it, actually. I'm not sure. I'm a bit vague about that. But, but um, you know, it was significant. I hope they were. I hope they do record that. But we'll see what happens, you know. We'll see what happens. But either way, we videoed it. The samples have gone off. And it will be, um, it'll be verified or not, as the case may be. Well, you raise an, an interesting point that I never even considered. But, you, you know, 
you obviously you put the expedition together and everything. How does mm. you know? How do these guys end up coming along, the camera guys? And do you have any choice? Do you try to warn them? Like, like how, what's that relationship like? Because it seems like you know you guys are doing all this prep to go. Uh, what if they throw some teamster in there? It's like three hundred pounds, and he's <laughs> you know he's like he's just supposed to be filming it. How's that whole thing work? He, he's going to suffer. Throw <laughs> 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 some guy in like that, um, you know. Uh, it depends. It depends. The answer is when I've done the Monster Crash films, you know, they've they've paid for the expedition. They pay for us to go out there, and um, and you know, the guys I've worked with have, have all been really good. Jared McGillia, Jared Christie, and the cameraman Aaron. They were great. I had a really good time, and I'm still in touch with them. We're still friends. They don't normally send. Um, people who are puffing and panting. You yeah. know what I mean, they don't because it's their film and their time. With these guys, um, I basically said to them, "Look, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go out there. This is the expedition. You know, we're, we're we're pretty much financing it ourselves. So this is what we're going to do. I don't mind making time for you at the end of the day to talk about stuff. But if you're at the back of the trail, you're at the back of the trail. Yeah. Uh, if you're if you miss shit, you miss it. I'm not going to like. I'm not going to like um, sit around waiting for you." It's up to you, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, in answer to your question, um, they put up or 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 sort off. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And are you? I I guess you know. You say you're responsible for your team and everything. Do you feel a sense of responsibility for these guys, or is it like do they have a boss that's oh, sort yeah, of along no, the way? Oh yeah, no, I feel responsible for them. I feel. I mean, obviously, yeah. It, <laughs> I mean, you were like, oh, you know, fuck them. Who cares? Who cares? If, no. Who cares if they got no, the shit? I, I, I make sure mean, that you know, they're well. They're, they're, they're cared for. You know, I was in a lot of contact with um, um, Tara, who who did a lot of the production, and uh, Morgan was the producer. But you know, I made sure her wishes were catered for, and that um, she was comfortable with everything. Yeah, of course. That once they're on the team, they're on the team, and, and you know. And 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 they are just as much part of the team as the rest of them. Yeah, they're, they're, they're looked after in the same way as they would anybody on the expedition. You know, what, they were. I mean, they they were a little bit. Probably, one of the guys, Chris, got very ill at one stage. Yeah. Uh, and I was extremely worried about him. I mean, luckily he's pulled through and he's fine now. But I, I was very worried at one stage about about how he'd um, how he'd cope because he was really poorly. But he's a tough cookie and he pulled through. So all credit to him. But we had a few rough days with him. That was pretty intense. But but those are the things, you know. As I've said before, to to equate to it to people in America who can listen to the show, it's not like when you're at home or even if you're in, um, say, North America looking for Sasquatch. If you break your ankle there. It's damn uncomfortable, and it maybe it's it's a very unpleasant journey back. Not to take anything away from it. If you if you break your ankle in some of these places um, I've been to, not necessarily in Dibba, in some of them, you you know, I was conscious of the fact when I was going through the mangrove swamps in the Congo. If I break my ankle there, it could it could well be my death. Yeah. So without being dramatic, those sort of things become extremely important, and it's my constant worry. Yeah. Not to sound like an ass, but how could you die from the broken ankle? Just well, like basically, because because it was, it was it was extremely difficult terrain. Um, it would be um, it would be um, up to four up to a week actually oh, wow. back on a stretcher. Um, infections are high. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know that that's it. You're taking a massive risk. Yeah. So so, so that's how. Yeah. So yeah. Even a small thing um, can can suddenly in extreme environments magnify in intensity. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So 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 that's how they build. Um, uh, and, and so everything is, is very. I have a medical kit that I rattle around with, which weighs my 
bloody rucksack down enormously and I've got bandages and all sorts of shit in there and features and everything. Um, and I, you I, just I, hope I, not I, to I, use it. Yeah, I just really hope not to use it. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, are the, uh, what are the odds of like diseases and stuff down there? I always worry about traveling internationally with these in these countries like this. Uh, you know, do you have to get a lot of shots and stuff? Is it dangerous in that sense? You know, mosquitoes bite you, you're worried all of a sudden, or is it, is it okay? Yeah, well, I, I think I read in the um, local... I didn't, one of the things I didn't realize was how prevalent malaria was in that particular part of India, because when you go to see your local your doctors for travel advice, they'll look at India as in a generic area, and they'll say, well, the malaria there isn't, say, as intense as it would be in, say, um, the Tanzania or the Congo, you know, there are different right. malarial strains without boring people. But but when I, when I, then I read in a local newspaper that 66 people had died in malaria. Oh so it's quite virulent there, yeah. Um, uh, 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 so, of course, malaria tablets were the norm. I've had a pincushion approach to uh, preventative disease. Um, I, I've had all the inoculations known to man, but as you know, I still get I still get ill. Yeah, you know how I got that tropical disease last time in, in yeah. <laughs> coming back from Sumatra and um, and spent some time in in, in um, an isolation ward in hospital. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> that was that was that was jolly um, looking at the walls. Um, but <laughs> you know, it's just one of them things, isn't it? Uh, you know, if um, if if, um, if you're worried about that that stuff, you wouldn't do it. But you have to you have to sort of um, accept that at some point you're going to get sick doing these things. Yeah, right. Exactly. Because even you know, just just the just the transition from you know, you're living in Manchester, like you said, mm. it took you about a day and a half, or maybe a day or so to. Then you're in the jungle. I mean, that's mm-hmm. got to put your body through some kind of shock, too, in a way. Oh, absolutely. You, you, I mean, you do come back, and you, I mean, I do, I do come back from this thing, you know, because you have the physical um, strains. You have, you're making the film. You're doing the, you're doing the expedition. Obviously, I'm planning it, so I, I have all that. I love it, Tim. I love it. I can't say how, you, you know how much oh, I love it. Absolutely. But but I do come back knackered. Yeah, and, and I'm tapping away at my computer in my day job, and I'm thinking, shit. Yeah. <laughs> but you do have to buy the bullet. And I have a I have a rough couple of weeks when I come back when I'm uh, a bit a bit beaten up. Um, so yeah, you do have that debilitating effect. And I'm glad it's Chris. You know, as we as we as we're doing this interview tonight, it's Christmas week, and I'm looking forward to like um, it's it's Tuesday. It's is it Tuesday today. It's Tuesday today, the 21st. Um, on Thursday night, I'm off, and that's it. And I've got a bit of a break for Christmas, but it's been a struggle the last few weeks. But that small recompense for what I do, I love it. As you know, if I could, I, I, if I had my dream, it would be to do this full time. Absolutely, you know I mean? yeah. Uh, if I could do it full time, make a series or something, I'd absolutely love it. Um, and maybe that'll happen one day. But right now, I have to pay the bills and I have to finance these things myself. So I have to work. And uh, I hear you, brother. I, I'm, yeah, you know, and you yeah, have to work because of that. You have to. You have to. You work. You suffer. You work. But um, I wouldn't change any of what I do um, in a heartbeat. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Not to even compare what I do to what you do, but at the same time, it's sort of like when you're in this field, it's like you do have two jobs if you if you have a regular yeah, totally. job. Well, I know how much effort you put into into the stuff you do, and it must be like a second job. Exactly, it yeah. Really must be because it is to me, and I'm sure. I mean, we do different things that we're we're on different different sides of the field, but the stuff you do is just as important as the stuff I do because you bring it out there to people, and and I know. 
and no, it's it, it's a damn slog in different ways. So so I think we can empathize on different levels on that. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Um, is there anything else you think we should talk about with the with the Mandy Burung? Expedition, because I still have some questions yeah, I think, about I think, you know, I think we've I think, covered a lot of it. So yeah, I think we've covered a lot of it. I think you know we're at the stage now where we kind of wait and see what happens. Yeah, yeah. but the, the, the research is in, and we just got to see if anything really positive pulls out of it. But the snapshot is yes. Um, there's credible stuff out there. Yes, there's untraversed jungle which could support it, and yes, I feel confident this is a sustainable population, and I would go back. All right, there you go. And let's talk a little bit about the the Orang Pendek because this is sort mm. of like this is kind of like your white whale in a way. I mean, you've been really <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. You've been yeah. chasing the Orang Pendek for a while now, and I guess the DNA evidence came back uh, not not too not too long ago. So what what's the word on that? Yeah, I was I was pleased with that. I mean. The, 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 the DNA came, Lars did the DNA analysis. Um, well, first of all, he examined the, the structure of the hair. And um, he basically said, well, it looks to me like it's an unknown primate. Yeah, that was the first step. And then the DNA analysis came in and said, well, it's something closer to human. But I'm still forced to conclude that there's an unknown primate living in the jungles of Sumatra, which is really significant for a scientist to have extracted DNA and say, yes, there's an unknown primate living in, 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 in um, the jungles of Sumatra. I'm delighted with. The structural analysis confirmed the um, research that Dr. Hans Brunner did separately um, many years ago. We recall that I went with Andy Sanderson and Keith Townley to Sumatra, and he said, well, uh, Hans Brunner stuck his neck out. He'd done the Digo baby case. He'd worked for the Australian police in murder cases. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, yeah, it's an unknown species. I'd had Chivers who analyzed my prints and said, yes, they're unknown primate. And now we've got the DNA. Now, there's a lot of speculation about what it is. Is it um, a new species of primate, which is what I think? Is it some subspecies of orang or something like that? Um, you know, people are speculating about what it is. And, and you know, whatever it is, I have my own theories, but whatever it is, I think the thing that I would say is since I started looking at this thing over 10 years ago, um, I think it's moved. The, the debates seem to be, in my opinion, moving from whether it exists, which for me is now fanciful, frankly, to what it is, Yeah, which yeah. is great. Yeah, And the reason it's great for me, very simply put, Tim, is I have been as you know, on a number of occasions to Sumatra, I have been one year driving for half an hour through a place which was virgin jungle forest. I've come back 18 months later, and that had been a bloody palm oil plantation, uh, and it was devastating. And so, you know, the, the more proof I get for the existence of the Rang Pendek, it's its best and only chance, in my opinion, of its survival. And so, the more I push towards um, its survival and, and people recognize its importance, and there's a lot of Indonesians who are with me on this, um, then the, the, the more hope I can have for it, it, to, it, it to be preserved. And to use the gorilla analogy again, there's a lot of really good work being done now, for example, in Rwanda and in, uh, in the Congo about the preservation of gorillas because they recognize how important they are. You've got good, well-organized people who are, who are stopping poaching and snares. They're not, they've not eradicated it, but they are. And I would hope that the, the best thing that could happen in my life is that my research 
as a small part, not to take anything away from Debbie Martin and Jeremy Holden, who spent more time on it than I have, mm-hmm. but my research goes in some way to contributing to the future preservation of that environment, which will in turn preserve the Orang Pendak. That's the best thing I could wish for. And there's nothing in the field of, of cryptozoology I feel more passionately about um, because it upsets me when I think about it. Yeah, yeah, because we're, you know, it's a race against time in a, in a big totally way. Totally a race so. against time. People have said, you know, you hear some people lazily thinking, well, why don't they just leave it alone, yeah? Why don't they leave it alone and do its own thing? You cannot leave it alone, yeah? Simply, simply, if you leave it alone, um, you know, the next thing, it will be gone. Full stop, yeah? Yeah. And, 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 you know, and I do these, as you know, when I go on these things, I have a right laugh and I really enjoy it. And, and I wouldn't, you know, some of the things we do, and it's a great ball. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't change uh, any of that for the world. But there is a fundamental, really important principle. Um, you know, every, every, all the expeditions that I organise, um, not just the science has integrity because it's done by independent researchers, but I only do them um, because um, I hope that some intrinsic usefulness and good will come out of them. If I thought I was screwing something up, I wouldn't go there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, the DNA evidence that came back this year, this was from the hair that was picked up last year, right? Yeah, that's right. You remember Dave, me and Dave Archer were in the jungle, and yeah. uh, when we were together, Dave saw the Orang Pendak. And on the other side of the of, of the lake where we went, I picked up a trail of the Orang Pendak. I was, I was just ahead of one of the guides and picked up a trail. And I followed the trail and the prints. And um, on the tree, um, we found some hairs. Um, which um, the forest rangers said could be uh, possibly be from the Orang Bandak. They were certainly um, the footprints were leading up to the tree. Do you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. it wasn't it wasn't a Sherlock Holmes moment where we speculated what could this be from. <laughs> um, you know, it was it was pretty obvious you needed to uh, to, to bag them. So um, so that was what we did. And um, you, you know, I, I was I was delighted when the, when they came out. I've just um, you know, it, it, it's great when you have a result like that. It really is. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, and I, and I said to the team, when um, discoveries of this nature first come out, there's often a lot of, was it um, really genuine, blah, blah, blah. I've not had too much of that, but, you know, people take a long time often to ruminate over these. But, you know, my own belief is in 50 years' time, they'll still be talking about that. I think it's hugely, hugely significant, in my opinion. And And... The, the the question I was sort of leading to here was, okay, so then you got DNA evidence, or I guess you could say DNA results back from a different hair in the past, right? And what I'm going with this is, like, is there any way to compare the, the DNA evidence of those two hairs to come to any sort of conclusions in a way where it's like, oh, well, these hairs match, and they're both still unknown, an unknown primate? Well, it was the, the DNA. The first time it's, a DNA has ever been extracted was this year. Oh, okay. Um, what has happened before is that um, Hans Brunner and Lars Thomas have both confirmed that the structural composition of the hairs are unique. Yeah. Okay. The first time DNA has ever been extracted, where a scientist has been able to confidently say it's from an unknown primate, was Lars Thomas this year. That's why it's so significant. Yeah. That okay. never happened before. Simple as that. So, so what you can't people people are right in saying, well, you can't draw a definitive conclusion as to what it is, and I accept that. But what you can say is that it does exist. Exactly. Yeah. 
Yeah, and if it was some other creature, they you know, then you would be able to say what it was. Yeah, exactly. You you haven't got huge huge comparisons, but we know it's out there now. Yeah, and 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 I think people would have a hard time saying, well, I don't believe anything exists at all. They may say, well, it could be this, it could be that. But you can't deny its existence. And I think that that's the big, in my opinion, that's a big leap forward. And that's a significant leap, a very significant leap. Absolutely, yeah, for sure. I mean, this is, that's it, like you said, uh, a long time from now people will still be talking about it. It's a historic Yeah, I think so. I think so. Us. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I've done this um, research for years. And, and before that, I did, a, I did a degree in history. So I know a little bit about archive research. So... Uh, you know, again, we're we're doing our mystic mystic Tim and Adam show, but but, <laughs> but, but, but you know, in um, in fifty years' time, when we're sat on our hoverboards chewing the fat about this shit, um, I think we'll still remember that as a poignant moment when I'm talking about this to you now. Absolutely, yeah. Now, when we talked last year, you you were pretty confident that if you went back to Sumatra at a certain time of year, you know, under the right conditions, that you'd hmm. you know that you'd be able to. I, I I don't want to put words in your mouth, so let's just say you know. You'd, you'd come up back with some significant additional evidence, I guess you could say. <clears throat> yeah, I think that's right. I'll go again, Tim. I'll go again. Um, <laughs> it's just like, oh, here we go again, you know. Oh. Yeah, last year you were sort of you were sort of burned oh. out, but now it's like yeah, yeah, I bet yeah. you're well, chomping a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I want to eat those chili fish heads three times a day all over <laughs> again. I want to go on the Sumatran weight loss diet, a before and after thing, you know. Look at me now. <laughs> um, yeah, I will go again because I have to. Um, it's it, it, it's vocational. I want to do other things. Um, I definitely want to do other things, and I'll talk about those um, if I may in a minute. Oh, absolutely, yeah. But but, um, but yes, I'll go back. Um, and and what's encouraging, you know, I have, I've taken different people over the years, but the team I went with last time, they're all extremely enthusiastic about going back. They they were excited by it, and because I've been a number of a number of times. Their excitement sort of in, inspires me a little. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely, yeah. You feed it off other people, and when you see other people really enthusiastic, it encourages you along. Um, you know, I've got to the stage now where I don't really need any jungle guides. I could pretty much run the ship myself. I take them, of course, but you know, <laughs> they know the area that well. Um, it's like going down to my local corner shop. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it is an amazing place, and and um, I I have to go back because. There's still good work for me to do. Um, maybe you know, maybe I'll go back next year. We'll we'll see how it goes. And then, I guess, like let's let's say you're back there. You know, what's the, you know, what's the best case scenario to push this to the next level? Because obviously, we've we've established last year, you know, killing this thing would be a terrible idea. You'd end up probably you know eating fish heads for the rest of your life in the Sumatran jail. <laughs> would you visit me in prison, Tim? Give me something other than watery rice. <laughs> So, so you know, where do you where do you go? I guess to to take this to the next level. Obviously, filming it. Would you try and capture this thing? Is it even possible? Do you even have the supplies to do something like that? So, you know, let's take you into a best case scenario situation here with the Orang Pendek. The best the best case scenario for me personally. Well, I mean, on a personal level, I want to see it. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it, it, it. You know. I was really pleased Dave saw it, but as I said to you, he saw it, he saw it in his first hour, in his first trip to Sumatra, yeah. And if we just catch your mind back, we, 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 we went there, I knew specifically where I wanted to go, I knew the best location, I knew where I wanted to go first, took him there first with me in Sahar and Donnie, and he saw it, and, 
you know, that was great. I was just like a few seconds behind him, so I didn't see it. And and he, he tried to make it feel he tried to make me feel better by saying, "Well, I didn't see his face." And I was like, "Shit, man, he didn't see his face. I've yeah. been waiting years to see it." You know, um, but I would like to see it personally. Um, aside from that, I think you know, I'd like to get it on camera trap. Um, I would like to get some clear high-res pictures on camera trap. Um, I'd like to get more DNA, comparative evidence. Uh, I'm never going to shoot one. Um, yeah. It's against my ethics. I don't care if it's um, doing a cabaret in front of me. I'm two feet in front of it, and I've got a loaded gun. Um, I wouldn't shoot it. Um, it's just not me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it's going to be. It would be extremely difficult to trap a creature of, of that size and strength without physically harming it. You'd have to use snares, and what you'd end up doing is 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 ripping off part of its limb, probably. Yeah. I don't have the resources to build some sort of um, high-tech gaming um, thing the same way you, you trap, say, tigers. Maybe that's something for somebody else. Um, and it's a, good, it's a good sort of tangential point, for want of a better word. But the best thing I can hope for with the research and equipment and resources I've got is something on camera trap. Uh, it's still a massive long shot, Tim. Mm -hmm. you know, it's a massive long shot. And, you know, you have to go to that area preparing to be disappointed because the chances of getting something are always really slim but um, you know for all the reasons I've said I think it's a good thing that I'm doing so um, if I go back and, and, I'm, uh, and I don't get anything then I have, to, I have to take that on the chin most of the time I go I don't get anything I don't come back every time with loads of great successes I, I'm, I'm fortunate and, and lucky that I've had a few very significant ones but but it's not um, it's not something that I get all the time. So what else do you have on the agenda for 2011? Uh, you know, I, I'm sure you have sort of all these dream scenarios percolating. So you know, is there anyone sort of starting to rise to the surface here? Well, Sumatra's one. I mean, that that's definite. Mm -hmm. um, I'm also thinking about um, you know, I'd love to go to Bhutan. If I had the money, I'd go to Bhutan. I definitely would. Um, it's an expensive country to get to, Tim. So, so you never know whether you can like properly afford it. Do you yeah. know what I mean? It's yeah. like, oh, if I could do it, I would. One of the things you know, I've considered, and I'm considering more and more now, um, is is going to um, look for Sasquatch. So, wow. if your listeners have any advice and support about that, then I'd be welcome. Um, I'd, I'd accept it. I'd be welcome to listening to it because that would be. That's something that I'm really interested now, more and more in doing. So um, anybody any advice or help about that, then I'm, I'm ready to dip my toe into a very big um, pond in relation to Sasquatch. Uh, I, really, I really want to go and look for it sooner rather than later. So if there was a headline, it, it would be, yes, I'm going to Sumatra, hope to go to Bhutan, cellulose on the boil for the cellulose serpent, but um, I want to start turning my attention to America too. Awesome, awesome. That might be the the best news I've heard in a long time. I'm excited about this. That raises. Yeah, I want, I want to go. I mean, I know it's a it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a it's a large field. Yeah. With a number of very competent researchers, but I'd like to just start on it. Just start on it and and see if I can make a tiny difference. Yeah, and you bring a whole different experience. style to it that that really I think it would be refreshing. Mm, yeah, well, I hope so. But but it's it's where to start. That's and, the question and, I was just going to ask you. Where, yeah, where this where country's so vast, and there's so many 
theoretical pockets, I guess you could say, of Bigfoot, but not too many hot spots, really. That you know, like no, that's it. Well, I've spoken to. I mean, obviously, I'm in touch with 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 with, with some of the American researchers, but yeah. it's something that I need to I need to sort of delve into. So that's why um, I'm making an open appeal on, on Binnell for any help. There you uh, go. And, and any suggestions that people have, and uh, you know, coming to America short, shortly, hopefully. Adam Davis. <laughs> I like the way you I like the way you phrase that there. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So so that's sort of on on the radar. Sort of uh, something that's that's growing. And like I said, yeah, it's a very sounds like a very difficult mission, I guess, to to undertake in in the sense that I couldn't even tell you where to go myself. You know, it's like no, absolutely, you no, don't I hear know, about I know it. these things going on really that much. And if there's a Bigfoot sighting, it's like you know, here today and gone tomorrow, literally. You know, yeah, absolutely. they may never yeah, show I mean, up again for weeks or, or there, whatever. There are there are absolutely real concentrations of pockets. I mean, I know that they're, they're in, um, in you know in the Oregon area. I know there are places there. I know there's a very active Texas Bigfoot. I know there's, there's, ah, yes. there's, 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 there's the Canada, and I know that there's obviously the California. So I know a little about it, but I'm at the stage right now, very openly, where I know a little. Yeah, and and, um, and the first thing that you know I have to do when I when I explore that is getting my feet on the ground so I know a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's going to take. I, I I appreciate that that would take years, but but if I get if I go over there and I get a feel of it, then that's a start. So I'd rather do that um, uh, as soon as I, as I can. It'll depend, you know. At this stage right now, uh, you know, I always have, um, after I finish an expedition, I always have about three or four ideas bubbling along, as you know. Yeah. And, and, and one or two of them come to fruition every year. So those are my ideas right now. Something might change to, to, to influence that. Um, I don't know. But, um, you know, of course, if I was doing it full time, I'd be in America tomorrow. Cause, cause that, but, but it is a place that has grown on me more over the last few years because I sort of think, well, I've got a lot of experience now and I might just, might just be able to bring something a little bit different to the party. Yeah, and I think your, your, like I said about the refreshing style, I think your, your methodology of sort of the extended stay would be really beneficial because most mm. of the Bigfoot expeditions you hear about are, are weekend warriors. They're people who just go out for like two days or overnight. But if you're, you know, if you're, let's say you spend three weeks on, on the hunt, that might be the significant extra piece of effort that we need. Well, the embryonic idea I have right now, in the first instance, I'd just be, I'd just be um, exploring areas. Yeah. So I may, may well just say go to a particular place for, for, for a few days, then go to somewhere else in a different, right. different part of the U.S. for a few days to kind of, kind of pick which I, which I had a feel for, have mm-hmm. the most chance of me finding it. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, so, so sort of survey the whole area of different Yeah, exactly. Locations. The first would be a broad, yeah, it'd be like a broad brush approach. And then, you know, on the second and third revisions, I'd gradually concentrate into a particular area where I had a feel for. But I think in the first instance, like when I go to any country, um, uh, some of the undeveloped um, areas. It's it's first time you you kind of you're revising and you're revising and you're revising and gradually you're paring it down. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So so, so it's it's moving it it's moving it forward that way, and I'd have to do that in the first instance. But there is just so much information on 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 there about all of these things, and, and there are so many researchers. It's like, you know, it's it it it. it, it it's not like when I go to India, in contrast, and as we've talked about, there is very little research, um, and, you know, a lot of the areas are unexplored. It's a completely different field. So that kind of appeals to me in a way, and that's probably, you know, 
while I'm thinking it through and chatting to you about it as to one of the appeals of it, is the fact that it's a completely different challenge to what I'm used to. Does that make sense? Absolutely, yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's completely the reverse of, of everything I'm familiar with. So that's why um, it appeals in a, in, in a number of ways. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I reckon at the end of it, I could have a damn good party in America. But I that's for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> well, you got to make your way over to the East Coast uh, so we can oh, have yeah, a beer yeah, for sure definitely. and check out Lauren Coleman's uh, International Cryptozoology. Yeah, I've got to go well. there. I promised. I promised I'll go there. I've got to go see his museum. Yeah, I'd love to see his museum. I've heard it's great. I saw, I saw the photographs when you were there mm-hmm. um, uh, that he put up on Crypto Monday. Um, yeah, no, I've got to go to his museum. Definitely got to do that. He's been um, he's been a great help to me over the years. So uh, yeah, and I, I believe there's a. I believe there's a copy of uh, one of your one of your Orang Pendek prints there. So yeah, there is. Yeah, he's got one in his museum, which is which is great. So uh, yeah, it'd be nice to see it. <laughs> Obviously, I've got I've got one for myself, but it's nice to be see, to see his uh, his photo his uh, his print there. Yeah, no, definitely, I will make it over there if I go. Awesome, awesome. Well, on that note. I think we've wrapped up the uh, the update for the year here. Fascinating stuff once again. I, I mean, I take my hat off to you. I, I put you over huge at the beginning, but I, I got to do it again. Like like I said, you put your money where your mouth is, and you step up to the plate and make these expeditions happen. And and this year was even more remarkable in a way because the Manny Burung is like this really enigmatic and mysterious creature that I had never even heard of till I started hearing about it from you. So it's like you've, you've done a great service of putting this thing on the map and, and hopefully going a long way towards establishing this thing as the latest in the many different bipedal primates that may be running around on this planet. So, you know, just remarkable stuff beyond the expedition, too. So an educational thing going on as well. So kudos to you, sir. An awesome job with the with the Sumatran uh, Orang Pendek, the DNA evidence. I mean, you just keep piling. The hits keep on coming. From Adam Davis. Yeah, I hope so. I hope it, it keeps on coming for for a while. Well, I mean, I always have a good time on this show, you know. And, and hopefully in 2011 there'll be uh, plenty more adventures to tell you, Tim. <laughs> Absolutely. I'll extend the invitation right now. We're having you back next season for sure for an update on on your extreme expeditions because, you know, I, I tend to live vicariously through you, Adam. I'll admit it. <laughs> <laughs> That's good, Tim. Well, Tim, as I said, as I said, you know, after 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 Christmas, you know, you've had all the cake, and so you've had Thanksgiving, so you can work that turkey off. Um, you know, anytime you want to do that, job, <laughs> man, you get out there. You can be there. We can have some photographs of Adam and Tim in the jungle or on top of the mountain. It's down to you, man. <laughs> I'm going to be that guy that breaks his ankle. I can already tell. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh, you won't be. It'll be cool. <laughs> well, uh, once again, thanks for coming back on the show, Adam. It's yeah, always it's a pleasure. pleasure. It really is. I have the best time talking to you. And, and like I said, I just love hearing about your adventures. So I wish you the best of luck in 2011 and can't wait to catch up again. No, me too, Tim. Thanks ever so much. It's been great. That does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 6. Big, big thanks, of course, to my good buddy Adam Davies for coming back on the show and for providing us with some seriously fresh information on the Mandy Barung, as well as the search for the Orang Pendek. You can find out more from Adam, of course, at his website, www.extreme-expeditions.com. Pretty simple, extreme-expeditions.com. Check it out. And if you want more from Adam Davies, be sure to pick up his book, Extreme Expeditions from Anomalous Books. You can get it via Amazon, 
Barnes & Noble, or in ebook form for your Kindle, Nook, or iPad. You definitely want to read that book if you want to hear more information about Adam's adventures in various exotic locales looking for a real amazing variety of mysterious cryptids. Can't put over extreme expeditions enough. Definitely worthwhile reading. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio listener feedback, and we've got a couple of emails here as well as some other feedback I want to respond to, so we're going to dive right in. The first email comes from Dave in Tallahassee, Florida, and here's what he has to say. I subscribe to your BOA podcasts and enjoy them very much. I'm a relative youngster in ufology, part of the under-50s crowd, but have been reading, collecting, attending conferences, and studying the UFO subject for the past 20 years. In fact, I may have briefly met you at the bar at the first X-Conference in Washington, D.C., as there were very few younger people there. I also attended another X-Conference, but haven't been back, choosing instead to gather with friends every year at Lou Farish's Ozark, Arkansas Conference instead. Anyway... I enjoyed your 2010 UFO Roundup episode, but found it strange that you didn't mention Wendell Stevens in your In Memoriam section. Wendell was a unique individual, and his passing was a sad loss for ufology. He published over 50 books on this topic, some amazing, some not. I have around 25 of them. And was a driven researcher, had one hell of a UFO photo archive, and an amazing collection of many thousands of UFO volumes. Wendell was a walking ufological encyclopedia. Though he took a lot of flack for the Billy Meyer case, another complex and interesting conversation entirely, his investigation reports on this case were important and well-researched documents. No one's read them, though everyone's got an opinion about the case. Sadly, same as it ever was in this business. I know of only a few others who have collections in the 1,000 to 4,000 book range. My 600 title collection pales in comparison to someone like Wendell's. Just thought I'd mention the omission. All the best, Dave in Tallahassee. Thank you for writing in, Dave. Much appreciated. Thank you for your kind words about the program, and more importantly, thank you for pointing out this big oversight on my part. I completely missed Wendell Stevens in our in-memorial section on the program. Just completely slipped by me. I did my best to really give a pretty thorough look at the past year in ufology, but it's very hard to find sort of a list of people we lost, and I just did not see Wendell Stevens anywhere when I was doing my research on 2010. So thank you for picking up the ball where I dropped it. Much appreciated. Personally, I'm not very familiar with Wendell Stevens and his work. I'd have to do a little bit of background check on that and look into his stuff. So I think you put him over pretty well here at the end of the show and sort of got across how critical he was to the world of UFO studies. No disrespect intended on my part, merely an oversight. Wendell Stevens, of course, will be missed by all of us in ufology. And thank you once again, Dave, for pointing it out and putting over Wendell Stevens' contributions to the world of UFO studies. Much appreciated. The next email comes from Graham in Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada, and here's what he has to say. The Paula Harris interview on your site has been unavailable for a long time. When I click it, it goes to your web design host. For years. When I hear that interview, I will make a donation. Really enjoy BOA. Great job, my friend. 
Graham. Thank you for writing in, Graham. Uh, first of all, I'm a little put off, I guess you could say, by being held hostage here for the donation, but I'm happy to report for you, Graham, and for all the folks out there who have been waiting for the Paula Harris interview to be made available again, that it has been fixed. All of the download links are fixed, and anybody that wants to listen to the Paula Harris interview is now capable of doing so. So all the folks who have been emailing me over the last six months, because that's really how long the interview has been unavailable, not years, Graham, only six months, it is available to listen to now. So thank you for getting on my case about it, Graham. I appreciate it, even though I'm not really sure about the way you did it. So go out and download it, check it out, and for all the folks who haven't heard the interview before, you can kind of get a double dose of BOA audio here this week, because now you can hear our 2006 interview with Paula Harris from BOA Audio Season 2. So, Graham, I've held up my end of the bargain. The interview is now available. I'll keep my eye on the BOA donation inbox to see if you live up to your word, sir. And we're going to do something a little bit different here this time for our final part of BOA Audio listener feedback. I don't have any specific email or correspondence to mention, but I did want to sort of highlight what was a surprising amount of negative feedback to last week's edition of the program, the 2010 Ufology Year in Review with Nick Redfern and Greg Bishop. A lot of people were really, really disappointed with the episode and were really down on it, and I was kind of surprised by that because I enjoyed it so much and I enjoyed listening to it so much that when the episode got posted, all of a sudden this negative feedback started coming in, almost primarily on the BOA forum, from folks who just did not think it really lived up to the promise of what it could have been. I don't really know what to say. I guess I'm sorry that people didn't like it as much. I'm not afraid of negative feedback. I'm always interested in people's correspondence on how they felt about the episode, and as you can see from the fact that we're discussing it right now here at the end of the show, I don't run from this stuff. I'm more than happy to respond to it and discuss it with folks who may have differing opinions from me. Now, personally, I think it was a truly unique edition of the program in the sense that that was as real as it gets, folks. That was a real conversation between me and Greg and Nick, three good buddies, three guys who have spent a long time looking at the UFO mystery. And we kind of got similar feedback, in a way, to our episode featuring Jeff Ritzman and Jeremy Vaney last year, which a lot of people thought was too in-house. It was too inside baseball. And I have a feeling that it's almost the same sort of critique in a way. That episode and the year in review episode, these are the sort of conversations you'd hear if we were all sitting around having a beer. And I personally think that they provide a fascinating, unique perspective that you're really just not going to get in a lot of places. Yes, I'm sure Greg and Nick could have come on and been really bullish about ufology and been really bullish about where UFO studies stand but then they wouldn't have been honest with you guys. Then they wouldn't have been telling the truth about their feelings on the subject. Yes, I suppose the conversation could have been seen as pessimistic, but as we tried to point out at the end of the show, I thought it was more realistic. This is really where we stand when it comes to unlocking the UFO enigma, and it's not good, folks. It's just not a good place right now. Hopefully someday we'll look back on that episode and see it as the point where really the frustration with the wheels spinning in UFO studies started to crystallize. That's my hope, and that's my opinion. I'm hoping that things change. 
the other guys want things to change. We all want things to get better in UFO studies, and they're working hard at it, as am I. But we wanted to give you an honest look at the way UFO studies has shaped up in the last year and where it looks to be going in 2011. BOA Audio always strives to give you the most honest look at the world of the esoteric and the year in review for better or for worse and warts and all was our look at the year in ufology. The surprising amount of negative feedback has certainly given me pause as to whether we should do another year in review for 2011, but we'll let the year unfold and see what happens and see if it's something worthy of pursuing at the close of 2011. I still really enjoy the conversations with those guys. I still thought it was a fantastic conversation and one for the history books and one we'll look back on in the future, but I can totally see the point of view of the BOA Audio listeners who felt that it was a little bit more of the same, too similar to the 2009 year in review, or just plain too depressing for an edition of BOA Audio. So, your correspondences have been heard, your feedback has been heard, and it's all been put into the memory banks here as we move forward into 2011. And while this may seem odd, I want to thank all the folks who did have the negative feedback to the episode because I appreciate your honest response to the program. That is what we need here on the show. More people telling us what you really think. More constructive feedback on the program is always appreciated. So thanks to all the folks at the BOA Forum who posted their thoughts on last week's edition of the program. And on that note, let's close up the mailbag once again here for BOA Audio listener feedback. Big thanks to Dave in Tallahassee, as well as Graham in Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada, as well as all the great folks on the BOA forum. Before I give you the rundown on how to get in touch with me, I also want to give a big thanks to all the awesome folks on Facebook who have been wishing me well on my birthday. Yes, today is my birthday, folks, and a lot of cool friends on Facebook have been posting birthday wishes on my wall. So big thanks to all those guys. I really appreciate it. It is humbling to see so many people posting birthday wishes on my Facebook page. I'm just blown away. Woke up this morning and there were just dozens and dozens and dozens of posts to the Facebook wall from folks wishing me a happy birthday. Just humbling stuff. I really appreciate it. And uh, thank you so much for the birthday wishes. If you would like to be a part of future editions of BOA Audio Listener Feedback, there's a number of ways to get in touch with me. Allow me to roll through the list right now. First of all, you can go to banalofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com, and click the contact button. Or just write to boaaudio at hotmail.com. And the third method is to join up at the official BOA Forum the US of E.com, T H E U S O F E.com. Lots of great folks on there talking about the paranormal and the world of pop culture as well. We call it BOA's Paranormal Playground. It is the US of E. And as noted, I'm on Facebook and Twitter. So if you're a part of those social networks, feel free to befriend me or follow me or poke me. It's all good and I would love to be in correspondence with you via those various social networks. No matter how you get in touch with me, I read all correspondence. I've managed to have a few days of downtime this past week and really put a big dent in the unresponded to emails in my inbox. I think I've got maybe about two dozen emails left 
to respond to and some of those date all the way back to like early October. I mean, that's how seriously overstuffed my inbox gets, but we're very, very close and I'm going to take the rest of this week to respond to those folks. So if you're still waiting for a response from me, be patient. There's a good chance you're going to get it in the next week or so. And as always, you don't need me to say it, but I will. All correspondences are read, and if your correspondence is international or particularly pithy or raises a serious issue that needs to be discussed here at the end of the program, we will definitely feature it here on BOA Audio Listener Feedback. Up next, of course, it is the thanks portion of the program where we tip our hat to the amazing and esteemed BOA staff. Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V., Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Marla Pena, our contributing cartoonist Andy Carolan, and our webmaster Jeremy Boston. As you may recall from the last couple of episodes, we put the call out to new writers for BOA, and I'm very happy to report that we'll be debuting a number of new writers at the website over the next few weeks, so keep an eye out for some new voices at Benal of America. Thanks to the hardcore BOA audio listeners who heard our call for new writers for BOA. And I also want to do a plug here for the Wake Up Now UFO Paranormal Conference that's being spearheaded by our own Leslie Gunter. This event is going to be held the weekend of April 29th, 30th, and May 1st in Albuquerque, New Mexico. You can find out more information on it at wakeupnowconference.com, all one word, wakeupnowconference.com. We've also got a button for it at the BOA homepage. Fantastic lineup of speakers. I may try and make the trip out to Albuquerque myself to attend the Wake Up Now conference. Still got a couple months here to decide if I can make the trip. But whether I can make it or not, I want to highly encourage the BOA Audio listeners to check out the Wake Up Now conference in Albuquerque, New Mexico, April 29th, 30th, and May 1st. WakeUpNowConference.com. Check it out. And finally for this segment, of course, is the tagline we say every time around. If you're only listening to BOA Audio and you're not reading the columns at Benall of America, then you're only getting half the story. BOA, make it a part of your everyday search esoteric news and opinion. Now is the time in the program where I take off my hat and pass it around the audience requesting donations from the BOA Audio listeners to help us keep the program up and running. How can you do that? That's simple. There's two means to donate to BOA. You can go to the homepage, banalofamerica.com, and click the PayPal button. That's right on the left-hand side of the screen. And below the PayPal button at the BOA homepage is another button that has our snail mail address for folks who simply just do not trust the internet and want to do a mailed-in donation. Here is the snail mail address. Tim Benall, B-I-N-N-A-L-L, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, P-I-N-E-H-U-R-S-T, Mass, 01866. And you can find that at the BOA homepage if you didn't get a chance to write it down just now. We try to make a point here at the end of the program every time we read the snail mail address on two big issues. First of all, if you're going to make a snail mail donation, please include your email address so I can shoot you a line and say thanks for your donation. And if you're going to make a check or money order donation, please make it payable to Tim Benall and not Benall of America. 
because my bank is anal and they will not cash anything written out to Benal of America only to Tim Benal. So please be mindful of that if you're going to make a check or money order donation. We say it week in and week out, folks, but it bears repeating. No donation is too small and all donations go towards Benal of America and BOA Audio to help keep the website and the audio series up and running, freely available, and commercial-free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. Next week on the program, we have got a real barn burner of an episode for you folks. It is definitely one of the most requested guests ever on BOA Audio and someone whose appearance is long overdue on BOA Audio. I'm talking about legendary ufologist Phil Imbrogno, who will finally arrive on BOA Audio to talk about his new book, Ultra Terrestrial Contact. I can't give too much of a preview of this episode because I haven't sat down and edited it yet, but I can tell you that it sort of straddles the line between interview and jam session, and we cover a lot of stuff sort of dealing with the outliers of ufology, the weird cases that fall through the cracks of mainstream UFO studies. Phil Imbrogno really does an amazing job of researching these cases, So we'll talk about some of those cases, we'll talk about some channeling cases, and we'll talk about why it's important to look at these outlier cases, for they may hold the key to unlocking the UFO mystery. It's pretty compelling stuff, and I think we went close to two hours in the conversation. So it's definitely one folks are going to want to check out. Phil Imbrogno, long overdue to appear on BOA Audio, and it was really a thrill to get him on the program. And I have a feeling that it really will be the first of many, many appearances on BOA Audio for the legendary Phil Imbrogno. That's next week on BOA Audio. Hopefully we'll get it to you in about a week to ten days, because we're just about back on track with getting these programs out to you in a timely fashion. And on that note, let's close the book on this installment of BOA Audio. Big, big thanks once again to Adam Davies. Check out the book Extreme Expeditions and the website extreme-expeditions.com. Thanks to Dave and Graham and the folks on the BOA forum for participating in this week's edition of Listener Feedback. And, of course, big, big thanks to all you great folks out there, the BOA Audio listeners. You guys humble me week in and week out with your support of the program. You guys are amazing. I say it all the time, you are the fuel that drives the machine, but I really and truly mean it. You make this job so much fun. You make it less a job and more a passion. And and that's really thanks to all you guys and your support and your enthusiasm for what we do here on BOA Audio. And believe me, folks, that's a fact that's never lost on me. So thank you for your support and thank you for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off.